Burns fielder. He's gone to the dog. Welcome to the Gone to the Dogs podcast. Here we are Christmas week already. 2021. It's hard to believe that Christmas is here again as we're recording this, um, or as you're hearing this on the Monday, uh, the 20th. Christmas will be just five days away. Uh, I have two very special guests with me today, and I'm going to introduce them in just a moment. But I wanted to tell you real quickly about something that's happening down Jefferson Annual Bryce Arrowwood Memorial Hunt. This is what we call a weight hunt or a poundage hunt where the uh, raccoons are actually brought in and weighed. And this is a benefit for a young lady that was unfortunately killed in a terrible accident, uh, sustaining third-degree burns over her entire body. She was the uh, girlfriend of an avid coon hunter there in North Carolina. So the club in in Ellenboro is hosting this memorial hunt for Bryce Arrowwood, and it will be at uh, 519 Dobbinsville Road in Ellenboro, North Carolina, on January 29th. I hope you'll go out if you're in the North or South Carolina area You'll go out and support this very, very worthy cause. And our hearts and prayers go out to Bryce's family at Christmas especially. I did want to mention that with the December issue, ProHound Magazine will no longer be published. And that's been a magazine that's been near and dear to my heart because I served as editor of ProHound when I was at PKC. And um, the CEO of PKC, Roger Dale Carnegie, has made the decision to discontinue ProHound. So if you have that December 2021 issue, you will want to hang on to that because no doubt it will be a collector's item. So we'll say goodbye to ProHound. It's been a great magazine with all the statistics of PKC uh, down through the years. It was a lot of fun to work with the staff at CNH Publishing as we published ProHound each month while I was there. Now, at the beginning of the podcast, I promised you a special guest. And man, when I say special, I'm talking about real special. I have the lady that um, is my partner in life, um, Ella, with me today. Ella, how are you? I'm fine, Steve. How are you? (laughs) I'm doing great. I know since we first started talking about doing podcasts, I've wanted to get you on on the program, and it just seemed like there was always something that took precedence, and, and I know that's a dangerous thing to say when you're talking about your wife, that something takes precedent over, over you. But, uh, man, uh, it's just great to have you on the program, and here it is Christmas. Can you believe it? No, I can't. It went by very quickly this year, my first year of retirement. And I can say that I have enjoyed 50% of it. 
<laughs> Swarty, uh, Al retired after 20-some years with the Pasco County School District, right? right? Correct. And what do you miss most about that? I miss the kids and my daughter. I got to work with my daughter every day, which in itself, I would have taken no pay just to do that. However, they did pay me. <laughs> That's good, and they're sending you, you those retirement checks, Yeah, that right? big fat check once yeah. a month. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's, um, I, I've been uh, watching those things come in, you know, and trying not to spend uh, that money for uh, dog food and vet bills and things like that. No, that goes in the savings account that's buying my puppy. Oh, yeah. We're on, in the search out there. Any of you hear this podcast and know of a good breeder of dachshunds? Many dachshunds. Many dachshunds. You had one one time, didn't you? I did. I had my Heidi. She was the love of my life. So I don't want to replace her. I just want to get another dachshund. I see. They are great little dogs. I've had some experience with them, but I've heard you talk over the years about all your dogs. You've had a lot of different dogs over the years, haven't you? Yes, I have. I've had uh, sheepdogs, Sharpays, mongrels, <laughs> uh, but Heidi, my dachshund, was my favorite. Yeah, no doubt about it. I well, you know, Ella, uh, here with Christmas time coming up, we've got a lot to be thankful for, and we have some sadness, too. But, you know, like all families, I think, you know, Christmas can be a very, very special time, and a little sadness for those, maybe a lot of sadness for those who are not with us anymore. But we're just thankful that we have each other, and uh, we have a pretty good life down here in Florida, don't we? Oh, we have a wonderful life down here. We keep adding to our memories every year, and thank- hopefully and thankfully, we will have many more memories to share. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you're responsible for me being down here, as I say on the podcast, down here in the swamp. (laughs) Uh, You've been down here longer than I have, for sure. But, uh, you know, I wanted to ask you for our, uh, well, let's just go back and reminisce just a little bit. Okay. You and I come from the same neck of the woods, don't we? We do. I'm from Mabscott, West Virginia. You're from East Beckley. East Beckley. East Thank you Beck- for remembering. No problem. <laughs> the city of Beckley, when we grew up there, was a real special place at Christmas time, wasn't it? It was. I always looked forward to going downtown to the parade and that big fat Santa who handed out oranges and candy canes. Wow. You know, kids today would think oranges and candy canes what about xboxes and and uh, ipads and all that we really didn't have that did we no we had outside (laughs) that was our our entertainment right exactly right there was a big tree in my front yard that i would climb up and sit there and watch people walk up and down the street never threw anything at them i was very thankful for that (laughs) Well, I know when we met at church, didn't we? We did. Yeah, you know, you think in a town of 20,000 people, roughly, it might not have been quite that many when we grew up there, Uh, the town of Beckley. uh, You lived on one side of the the town, and I lived on the other side. That's right. And and, um, 
we didn't know each other at all, didn't know each, we, we even existed until we met at church, right? That's correct. Yeah. I remember you came on the church bus. Our our church had a bus ministry, which later on in life, I actually drove a bus. But uh, I sure do remember when you came to church. And we, we started dating uh, pretty soon after that, didn't we? Yes, we did. I was 15. You were 16. Wow. Somebody should have told us better, right? <laughs> Maybe you. <laughs> we think about our grandchildren, and we try to postpone that phase of their lives as as long as we can. That's we? true. Yeah, that's true. Well, but the world uh, is different now than it was back then. It sure, sure is. Well, we started dating, and I can remember very well the first. Uh, uh, my family got a new car, and uh, I remember you were my date the first time I drove that car. Uh, you probably don't remember that aspect, but uh, that I believe, I, I can't remember the exact year that was, but it, at least it was around 1962, I think, that we met yes. at at, uh, at church. And we had a great church youth group there and a lot of friends there and a lot of activities and all. But kind of always remembered this girl with this real wit about her. I never could get a straight answer out <laughs> of you. You never will. <laughs> and that has not changed, believe me. But, you know, um, getting back to Christmas time, you know, I remember the streets of Beckley. It was a typical town like, I guess, uh, you see on uh, It's a Wonderful Life or some of those old Christmas movies where we had sidewalks down either side and stores, department stores on either side, and bank buildings, and they all they lit the thing up. Yes, they did. It yeah. was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Yeah. And if we were lucky, it snowed. Yeah, and that was one of the things I remembered most about it was going downtown at night, Christmas shopping, and walking along those sidewalks with the snow falling down, the street lamps, all the lights, the Christmas carols, maybe a group standing on the courthouse steps singing carols. I don't know. Just <clears throat> It was just a wonderful time to grow up, I think. I agree with you. It yeah. was. I enjoyed my childhood. Yeah. We really did have a great life back then, didn't yes, we? Yes, we did. Honey. Yeah, I just wish everybody could could uh, have grown up the way we did. Exactly. Well, you've often said that you're a hillbilly tar heel. You want to define that? My mother was born and raised in West Virginia. My father was born and raised in West Jefferson, North Carolina, and moved to Beckley when he was, I think, 20. Met my mother and went on from there five children later <laughs> and you were the fifth one right actually yeah fourth i'm oh, the fourth okay. oh okay okay well i only have my brother randy and uh, he's been on podcasts with me before and he came along about eight years after i was born so uh but at any rate, um, just great to think back to our memories and all and how great it would be to take our grandchildren back 
there and uh, get them to just kind of get a peek at what things were like when we grew up. I know everybody likes to look back and think about their own childhood. And, but, you know, I wanted to ask you something else. Uh, Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when you learned, as, as everybody I think knows, you and I got back together late in life. We didn't see each other for many years. Circumstances led us off in different directions. We each had our own family, our own children, and all that. And then we miraculously, I have trouble with that word, got back together. But And then when we did, you learned that I was involved in this coon hunting thing. What what was your reaction about that? Well, I was a little surprised because as we were teenagers, you never really talked about hunting. I wasn't shocked because I know you love the outdoors. You love to fish and everything. Um, never talked anything about the dogs that you and your dad had. So I was a little pleasantly surprised. Oh, so it was not at all an unpleasant Oh, experience. absolutely not. Yeah, Absolutely yeah. not. Well, I think that goes back to your love of dogs, and we talked about that Correct. before. You really are a dog lover. Oh, I am. Yeah. I am. And we had a dog here when when we got together late in life. I had a dog, a plot hound, and a lot of people know about Hoss because he traveled with me all over the country. But you and Hoss became buddies pretty quick, didn't you? Oh, yeah. I loved Hoss. Hoss tolerated me. I loved Hoss. (laughs) Well, he was my dog, no doubt about it, but he loved you too. And he he was kind of a special guy. He was. Yeah, for sure. And then I brought this uh, big old pup in named Cruz, this walker dog. I don't think he ever quite reached the status that Hoss had. No, no. But I loved Cruz. Cruz is a unique dog. He's very friendly. Uh, he loves to chew chairs. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, to our dismay, discovered that Cruz, uh, just before I think we were going to send him up maybe to Michigan uh, to do some hunting or whatever, he decided that one of your wicker chairs would be a great chew toy. That's right. <laughs> Well, okay, I did take you coon hunting one time. Yes, one, and, one time. It's one time. <laughs> she wants to emphasize that, that she was one and done on the coon Correct. hunting. Correct. But you do tolerate the coon hunting. Oh, the way I feel about it is your coon hunting, your writing, your podcasting is what makes you who you are. And that's what I love about you. So I would never think, well, we've got to tell him he can't do it. So you're hunting. I don't have a problem with that at all. As long as I don't have to wear 30 million pounds of clothes and go with you. (laughs) You look like the Michelin. (laughs) I did. I did. Tire guy or whatever with so many clothes on because it was cold. Well, you know, you do uh, tolerate my hunting quite well and uh, on the trips. Like, I just got back from the White River, and I think I was gone, what, nine days? Yes. 
And what do you call it when I'm gone? Me time. <laughs> me time. As much as I love your hunting, I love my me time. So that's just a perfect blend of of what we both enjoy. And I think that's the secret, guys, out there. Number one, find somebody that you're compatible with as as much as that's possible. And Ella and I certainly are. And find someone that's understanding of your hobbies and wants the other person to have hobbies, too, and to have things. I think you're going to go back and start doing some volunteering after the first year. Yes, I am, and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, we're very fortunate here in Florida to have your Jackie uh, and uh, her children, uh, uh, and now she has married, and they have a blended family, and there's four children, four grandchildren, two girls, two boys, and they're all basically teenagers now. I think Chloe and Tyler are, what, 12? 12. Yeah, soon to be teenagers, so that must be a lot of fun over there, but... uh, they're great. We enjoy so much having them here close to us. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. We love when they come over, get to spend some quality time. Well, I wanted to ask you this question. Since you are a woman, uh, you are a very uh, straightforward, out, I won't say outspoken, but straight. You know, you, th- you say what you think and what you feel. What is your general idea about hunting you know so many people today don't really support hunting or they don't understand it and i want to i do you have an opinion one way or another about it well are you talking pleasure hunting or are you talking yeah predominantly just hunting and it can be hunting for anything you know oh that's that's one to throw me here um i do i Oh, I do understand that there are animals out there. There's abundance of animals that we need to (coughs) keep track of and not let the population overrun. So, no, I don't have a problem with hunting and killing. I, I prefer that if someone does that, it's something that they would eat, but... But I don't, uh, I love to see young boys and girls follow in their father's footsteps and go out and learn. That's a closeness that they can spend with each other. Yeah, well, you've always had a very healthy attitude toward that. And I know I put you on the spot a little bit bit. with that that one. But but yeah, I just... uh, Fellas out there, uh, I, my, a word of advice to you, if you're a young man looking for a mate, um, be like me. Find somebody like Ella that's open-minded about things, but also very firm in her opinions and, and her wants and likes and dislikes and all. Life will be happy. It will be happy for sure. Well, honey, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast with me today and uh, I, I wanted you to be here to help me uh, tell all of our listeners just how much we appreciate them. And you've been pretty tolerant of my podcasting, although it does take up quite a bit of time, doesn't it? It takes up a little more time than I imagined that it would. And I think 
part of my uh, feelings is I just retired, so it's something that we're both growing together. Uh, I don't have a problem with your podcasting. I think um, I've listened to quite a few of them, and I think you do an amazing job, and you have fantastic guests, so carry on. <laughs> well, folks, you heard it right there from the boss. I have permission <laughs> to continue with the podcast. Well, Ella, I just um, know that you feel the same way that I do, that we want all those families out there that are listening to have a blessed Christmas. Absolutely. Yeah, to be with their families and to cherish the memories of those that maybe won't be there this year. And and just uh, remember that there's a reason for this season, and that's the birth of Christ. I know we have a Christian home here. And, uh, honey, thanks so much for coming on the program today. I, I, it's really been a joy to have you. You're quite welcome. And to be honest, I enjoyed it. Wasn't sure, but I enjoyed it. Well, great. Okay. Well, with that said, we're going into our second uh portion of our podcast today, and we're going to bring aboard uh, a guest that I recorded while at the White River National Wildlife Refuge on our annual coon hunt there, a guy that's just one of the uh, most interesting guests that I've had on the podcast. Uh, He is, uh, well, listen, before I I spoil it all, I'm just going to uh, Bring on our guest and uh, wish you and uh, your family and all your friends a very Merry Christmas. What say you, Emma? Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to all of you out there. Welcome to the Gone to the Dogs podcast. I'm your host, Steve Fielder, coming to you today from the Dale Bumpers National Wildlife Refuge on the White River in Arkansas here in the Arkansas Delta country, just west of the mighty Mississippi. Uh, This has been a location for me at this time of year for about 12 years now, as I first joined my friend Nubbin Moore out this way back in 2010 for the first coon hunt, and I came out here to the big woods and the big bottoms and the big trees and just fell in love with the place and have been coming back every year since then. And uh, one of the things I've tried to do since I've been here is get together with the fellows that come uh, out here. We, we've kind of got a crew that comes year after year and do some recording for the podcast. And that's the purpose of today. Mission number one is to talk to my guest and my friend, uh, fellow coon hunter Keith Durkey. How you doing, Keith? I'm doing real good. Doing good. Yeah. How many years have you been coming out here with us to the White River? I think this is the fourth year. Fourth? Yeah. Seems like you've been one of the regulars, you know, right along. And uh, we started off uh, uh, the first time I came out. Of course, Nubbin's been coming out here since 1969 when he was living and working in Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, and the first year that I came out, Mr. Fred Sanders, who was in his 80s at that time and kind of Closing in on on the the uh, last years of his coon hunting, uh, he was here, and and then Kenneth Rains, who was just a great guy. I wish you could have met him, Keith. He uh, 
he was also from Memphis. And, and it was kind of like a black and tan mini reunion over here. Uh, most Everybody in camp was hunting a black dog in those days except me, and I had a plot. But little by little, the Walker dogs had kind of infiltrated, <laughs> and and uh, and all. We're going to talk about that and all as well. But uh, what I wanted to do today, first of all, is if you don't know Keith Durkee, you should know him. He has quite a resume in coon hunting. He's hunted, uh, I think, virtu- uh, by virtue of his military career, pretty much all over the United States. Uh, he, I want him to talk some about hunting out in Washington State and uh, and various places. You, you live in Alabama now, right, Keith? Yes, sir. I sure do. Shelby, a little town. Yeah, yeah, not far from where Nubbin Morley is. South of Birmingham, are you, or maybe west of Birmingham? No, south. South. Okay. Yeah. For anybody that knows, it's between uh, Birmingham and Montgomery. All right, all right. Well, you may have uh, detected just a little hint of an accent there that doesn't quite sound like Alabama. Uh, tell us where you your your roots are, uh, Keith. Where do you come from? Well, I grew up in a little town off the coast of Maine, uh, three miles off the coast, and it's sort of between around Belfast and uh, Camden. And uh, the only way to get to it was by ferry boat. You had to uh, you had to uh, take a ferry boat, uh, to held twenty four cars, and you went back and forth. And uh, you just uh, that's where I lived. And I lobster fished uh, for lobster, Maine lobsters. And uh, I grew up. And the high school I went to had one through twelve had ninety nine kids in it when I when I was there. And then I. I decided that uh, my mother decided she'd sell and moved in with our aunt, and we moved to the big town of Camden. And uh, it had a high school of about 100 and, I think there was 160-some in my graduating class, which to me was huge. I mean, uh, uh, my whole high school, 1 through 12, was only 99, and then I go to a school that's got 163 kids in the graduating class. So it was huge to me. And uh, I... uh, I got I got running around a little bit and got in a little trouble and I uh, had to go to court with on some charges that I got and just so happens that the 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 army recruiter was there and the the judge said I could either go to state prison for four years or I could go into the army for four years and my mother had my birth certificate my social security card and and I don't know how she knew in advance but she had my bag packed and everything so. I went to the uh, Army recruiting station, and from there I went to the uh, indoctrination uh, place for a physical and everything. And the next day I was on a, I was on a plane, never flown before. I was on a plane to Fort Dix, New Jersey, to go to basic training. And the fun began. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Infantry. Uh, well, at that time, basic was sort of. Uh, um, just basic, and then you went to your advanced infantry training. That's where I went, uh, and I took that at Fort Polk, Louisiana. Okay. Well, let's just, uh, while we're on that, about the military career, we'll just, just do an overview. Uh, you're, you're retired now. You spent a career in the military, right? Yes, sir. I spent 22 and a half years. Yeah. Okay. Well, now, and you were in, just, uh, you know, without me trying to guess, and we've talked before, but just give me ba- the basics of what your job was and what you did through the years. Well, I went through uh, infantry training at Fort 
Dick's New Jer- uh, Fort Polk, Louisiana. And then I went to Fort Benning for airborne school. And then shortly after that, I went to ranger training at, at Harmony Church at Fort Bragg. I mean, at Fort Benning. And then Harmony Church is a place where uh, all the ranger school is run out of and advanced infantry training is there. And uh, so th- that's where I ended up. And then I was assigned in a ranger unit. And I stayed there a little while. And then I uh, I went to another unit, uh, a specialty unit. And then that led me into uh, special forces. And I stayed in special forces for the, the bulk of, I stayed there about 15, almost 16 years. I, I started out as a, a light weapons expert light and heavy weapons expert. They call them 18 Bravos now. And uh, then I went on and uh, I ended up, uh, my first station was at uh, Fort Lewis, Washington, and I was uh, 18 Bravo on ODA 152. ODA stands for Operational Detachment A, and uh, I was the light weapons man on the ODA 152. And then I think... uh, Ten years later, I ended up being the main man, the master sergeant in charge of ODA-152. So I just went full circle. I I went to the operations, and then I went to running the place. I got you. Well, I knew you that you had that extensive career. Of course, we'll pause just a minute to thank you for your service and for all those veterans that are out here listening to our podcast. We, we thank them, too. It's amazing. Well, at some point, was it during that military career that the uh, coon hunting bug bit you a little bit, or was that there before you went in? Well, I I had started coon hunting at at, uh, Fort Bragg in, uh, I mean, Fort Lewis, Washington, and I did a little bit of it there, but really the, the bug got into me when I was transferred to Fort Bragg. I met a gentleman. I, my brother had had, uh, had cancer. And he loved beagles. So I looked in the, he wanted me to bring him a beagle home from North Carolina. So I found this guy in the newspaper. His name was Frank Kennedy. He lived in Grays Creek, North Carolina. And so I talked to him on the phone, and he said he had a litter of pups that would be ready to go in a week. I was going home, so I told him I'd stop by and buy one. Him and I talked, and he had coonhounds, two blue ticks. And he had some beagles, and when I went to pay him for the beagle, he wouldn't take any money for it. So I said, okay, sir. And I said, well, when I get back, I'd like to come coon hunting with you. And that's really where my career started. And it was about 87, I want to say. eighty, Yeah, eighty. last part of 86, first part of 87. And my brother passed away from cancer in 1990. And I kept coon hunting with him, hunting blue ticks. And uh, then one day a, a guy was selling a blue tick, and I bought, bought one. It was already started, doing a pretty good job, and uh, it just developed into that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, um, I know that you were probably deployed hundreds of times, I think you told me. I, uh, and how did that work out? How were you able to balance your coon hunting with your, uh, with your deployments and whatnot? Uh, you know, well, I was doing, I I was doing okay for a little while. You know, I was, uh, stationed and we weren't being deployed much. 
And then I got assigned to another unit that got deployed a lot. So I pretty much quit for a little while. I got you. And then I got reassigned to another unit out at Fort Lewis, Washington. I, I started there at Fort Lewis, and then I went back to Fort Bragg and was assigned there. And then I mm-hmm. got reassigned back to Fort Lewis. And uh, I started hunting there, but I couldn't find any blue ticks. I didn't have one with me, and uh, I couldn't find anything that that I wanted. And so I run into this guy. Now, some of you probably know him. His name is David Anderson. I remember David very, very well. Spoke to him many times. Well, him and I was a member of the same coon club up there. And one day he was talking about he had a he had a real nice dog named Hawk out of uh, Finley River Nighthawk. And I said, uh, Black Powder Hawkin, they called him. And I, I talked to him one day, and I get laughing when I think about it, right? But <laughs> I told him, I said, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to take a look at this pup you say you got. His name is uh, Rummy, and I said, "Yeah, I'd like." Yeah, I said, "How old is he?" And he said, "He's four months old." So I went down there and looked at him, and old big old grangly dog, uh, uh, already a big dog for his size, uh, for his age. And I said, "How much you want for him?" And he told me, three hundred, no, four hundred dollars." I said, "For a puppy?" I said, "You must be crazy." And he. So I thought about it for a little while, and about two weeks later, I bought him. Mm-hmm. And then I, I, I had Rummy, and I bought him in, I want to say, 92? Yeah, 92? 93 or 92. And I, I raised him and trained him. Uh, Courtney Risk helped me. He was out there. He was in the Air Force out there, and him and I got to be good friends. And he had a dog named uh, Red Eagle Dick. He mm. bought from someplace back east. He was old at the time, but he was a nice hound. Yeah, now he was not the original Red Eagle Dick that won the uh, the uh, ACHA World Championship, I'm sure, but he was probably an offspring out of out of Dick. I think yeah. he I think he placed in the top sixteen. In, mm-hmm. uh, a yeah, of there years. was a famous dog named Red Red Eagle Dick that was owned by Gary Hearn of Illinois, and, and he won the ACHA World Hunt one year. But I'm sure that Courtney's, uh, Courtney's a guy I know, too. And, and when I lived in uh, North Carolina working for AKC, I get a phone call one night. I'd known Courtney just from magazine articles and knew that he, you know, had been out in Washington, different places, and he calls me up. And he says, hey, I, you know, we live five minutes apart, you know. So we started hunting together and all he was a big help to me when I moved uh, from North Carolina, and uh, yeah, great guy. But uh, Dave Anderson was a class guy, really first-class guy in my view. Uh, I talked to him several times. One of the the last conversations uh, uh, face-to-face I had with John, I mean with Dave, was sitting at a table in McAllister, Oklahoma, at the PKC Dixie, a Little Dixie Jamboree, and uh, we were talking about uh, trash-breaking dogs and things like that, and the third member of that conversation was John Wick, mm-hmm. you know, and we just, I really enjoyed that conversation with those guys, and uh, yeah, it's always, this coon hunting fraternity is, is tight, you know, you meet some people that 
you really kind of get close to, you know. And I always, I didn't know him all that well, but I knew David and I knew his wife, I believe worked for the government or whatever, I think. She was a colonel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so anyway, uh, just always a pleasant guy to talk to. And then another mutual friend that from that area and from that guy that I kind of associate that is Travis Sterick. And I think Travis is a friend of yours too. Real good yeah. friend. Yeah. Tra Travis and I have been friends for years. We've been competitors, but we've always been good friends. Right. I've stayed at his house. I mean, mm -hmm. I've, I know his wife and his uh, Bobby, and I know uh, all, both his kids. And mm -hmm. um, I did a story one time, and I talked about all the windshield time the coon hunters put in going to hunts and all. And I mentioned, you know, here at the at – the, uh, uh, what is it, the Labor Day Classic in North Vernon, Indiana, is Travis Sterick, and he's driven all the way from Washington State to hunt his dog. That's not a walk in the park from Washington to Indi Washington State to Indiana, you know. So the Western hunters travel. It's pretty amazing how far sometimes. Oh, well, you you, you think about it. We held the zone in Oregon one uh, year, Oregon one year, and if you if you got in from where, where the world hunt was, it was almost eighteen hundred miles. Mm. And I had yeah. I had to be there on uh, Wednesday uh, to go hunting on Thursday. So yeah. you figure uh, I just pulled the dogs off the tree on Sunday morning. So it's Monday now, and uh, you got to you got to get ready to to go to the world the next day. 1,800 miles. you got to put your dog in the box and travel 1,800 miles. Yeah, think about the commitment that that involves, you know. I used to, in back in the days at UKC when the Purina race was really cooking, I mean, it was the hottest thing going. And there was a lot of guys competing. People remember uh, Paul Sheffield and Hardwood Dan and Bluegrass Amos and all the um, night heat and on and on. And I would be coming out of the motel on a Sunday morning, bright and early, getting ready to drive an hour maybe to the airport to grab a plane to fly back to Kalamazoo. And these guys had hunted the night before, two nights, and were getting in their trucks to make a thousand-mile drive back home. You know, so that, that always impressed me i i don't know some people would say that it's crazy you know to do that but that's what cooners do if they love it and, and of course they were involved in a in a race you know that they had to, to had to keep it going well listen let's let's explore a little bit more about rummy then i think rummy then kind of became your foundation for the walker dogs that you had for the years after that is that right yes sir yeah i uh I kept breeding him, I, but I found I had to be real particular on who I bred him to, because like if I if there was a stock of dogs that was known as bobcat dogs or, or lion dogs out west, I had to sort of steer clear of them because I don't know why, but you know he come from a, his mother was a lion dog, mm. and so when I bred him too close to these uh. Uh, dogs that were more bred for uh, chasing bears and cougars and, and bobcats and stuff. They just didn't have any interest in coons. I had one that was a phenomenal bad dog, but he would not run a coon. He, he just refused. And, and But when I hunted him on bears, 
he would just he would run everything in the woods and i just uh, uh so i i bred him to a dog uh and got i uh, i bred him to a a, a guy that w- the dog was out of um uh, uh i can't think of it right now but but i i come up with junior and i hunted junior and junior had a an aspect of being he was sort of quiet on the track he, he well he wasn't quiet. He he didn't open on the track, and uh, he uh, he he just uh, that was his style. And I I did a lot of winning with him, and then I bred uh, another dog down here. Adam Joyner had her, and if if you was in the if you was around here, you probably heard of her, Joyner Time Jazz, and I bred her to Rummy. And I got Mo and Jasper. They were litter mates, and they both did really good in the hunts. And uh, Mo uh, won the 2014 AKC World's Championship. Well, I I remember very uh, distinctly that when you won that, Keith, uh, that was after my AKC days. Um, I was there through, um, well, 2011 was my last year. That's when I retired. I went there in 2004 from PKC. Uh, I mean, that was in Orangeburg, was it not? Was that in Orangeburg, South Carolina, where yeah. you won it? Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and that's one another reason, you know, that I wanted to have you on the podcast because that's a lifelong dream of any coon hunter that I know is to be able, especially if they love competition hunting, uh, is to win a world championship. You know, uh, let's rewind just a little bit and drill down into this. Okay, Rummy was the first of this line, right? And yes, you bred him to tell me again what or what was the the next next notch? I bred him to I bred him to another dog. Uh, swing was the name. She mm. was one of Dave Anderson's dogs. Okay, I bred her to Swing, and I come up with uh, Junior. Mm-hmm. And then I bred him again to join a town jazz and come up with Mo and Jasper. Right. And then I bred Mo to um, Stella, a female that I got from uh, a good friend of mine in in North in uh, Alabama. And I come up with Rummy the third. And then I bred her again and come up with Rummy the fourth and fifth. I see. So you ended up five generations down from Rummy. Yes, sir. With those dogs. Yeah. That's. Uh... That's an impressive uh, line there for sure. And I think we talk about this a lot of times when we talk hounds on these podcasts about some guys just think, well, I get a coon dog uh, for whatever reason or the dog suits me or he doesn't. If he suits me, I keep him until he's too old or whatever or misfortune takes him and, and then I just go find another coon dog. Uh, some guys have that approach, or they go try to buy a dog, and the prices now are pretty high. But you've you kind of chose the breeding route, and I know um, from the talking to you the last couple of years, uh, you know you had a dog that really you had hopes for him, but he really you know wasn't that particular dog that you wanted to continue that line maybe, and so I knew right then that that line was very very important to you. Yeah, can you talk well, about that a little? Well, I start, you know what the line that I do is that I started out with Rummy and then I had Junior which was an exceptional dog. And during this process, I've only culled one dog out of all the dogs that I picked. 
I started out with Jasper and Mo. I mean, I had Junior, and then I started Jasper and Mo, and then I had three, and this last one, four, he he ain't worth killing, but I like him. And so when I had Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, I didn't hunt him much. But so he's not the kind of dog that I that I'd like to have because I didn't have the time to train him. I was sick, and Rummy the Fifth got run over by a car. He got hit. Uh, but you know, the, the the most of the time. Now this is just what I've noticed is that the more time you put into the dog, the better he is. Oh yeah. If you don't spend much time with him, he he ain't so good. And you know, I see coon hunters do this all the time. The first thing they do is that they go buy a, a puppy. Now, they don't have a light. They don't have a tracking system. They don't have any way of controlling him. They don't have any knowledge. They don't have anyone to tell them hardly. And they, uh, you know, they're dissatisfied because, you know, they can't train the dog, so it doesn't turn out very good. Yeah. yeah. I did just the opposite. I bought me a light, and I used Frank's dogs to learn how to handle them. And then I went out and got me, about a year and a half later, I went out and got me a dog. So I already had my light, place to keep him. Uh, a tracking system. Uh, well, I didn't come to a little later, but as soon as they come out, I, I got me a tracking system. And, you know, I had everything I needed. I had a little bit of knowledge. And then it slowly, uh, I don't know about you, but I call it on-the-job training. You know, I, I learned some things, but I also learned some stuff from some good people, like Adam Joyner. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the key, I think, you know, is to, to plug in. Because that knowledge is out there and it's free. It's everybody wants to share what they know, you know, about coon hunting. And I think we, without beating the young hunters to death, uh, but we mentioned them how a lot of the guys, the young and the new hunters, regardless of age, they come in and it's almost like they feel like they got to know everything. They got to join in the conversations and and come from a position of I know what to do I know and if you I, I have a, a conversation Facebook page called Coon Hunting Conversations and started it just for the purpose of coon hunters to go in there and talk and now we're up to like seventy six hundred members in that group uh, but the idea was you know to have a place where people could come and pose questions and. And, and maybe they're having a problem with the dog or whatever. But invariably, you know, the, you'll see, uh, and, of course, uh, we keep a close eye on it. We don't let people abuse other people on there. Uh, and there's a tendency to say, oh, well, you don't know what you're doing. You need to do this and you need to do that. And some of the suggestions they have, you know, I know they're wrong, and most anybody does. But but everybody seems like they have to have an opinion. As soon as you get involved in the sport, you got to be an instant expert. Mm-hmm. Well, to me, that's uh, that is uh, you're you're basically just kidding yourself um, because there's a lot of things to know about. You know, I do this all the time when I come out here with you guys or in any group of coonhounds. I pick their brains a little. If I'm having an issue with dog, which I am right now, you know, I talk to other people and say, what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? You know, and, and try to, uh, there's no quick fix. There's no magic formula, uh, because these are living, breathing beings and they're different just like you and me. But, uh, I think that's a big mistake that hunters make, especially the newer ones 
that want to jump in with both feet and be and prove to the world that they know everything about hunting with hounds. And believe me, I'm 75. I've been doing it since I was went first time with three years old with my dad. I don't know. There's a lot of stuff I don't know yet. You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think uh, for me, I, I try to, um, I can't say that I'm one of these people that play well with others. Uh, a lot of times <laughs> you've been with me long, long enough now, so you know what, sometimes I just, I, I'm just not very social. Now, there's sometimes I am, but for the most part, unless I know you, yeah, I'm not going to say a whole bunch. And, uh, you know, but I, I feel like one of the things a lot of new hunters do is that they, they try to use the same technique on every dog. And, you know, dogs are like kids. They, they're growing up. And, you know, I've had one dog where you, if you yelled at him, he wouldn't hardly hunt. But I've had another one, if you didn't hit him with a rock, something get his attention first, <laughs> he just wouldn't cooperate. Not recommended, folks. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying, sure. right? The, the idea that you could just talk to him and make him understand, he would just tilt that old big head of his, old man Rummy, he'd just tilt that old head, and you could see it all over his face. You talking to me? And But now, three, Rummy the third, if you yelled at him, ooh, ooh he didn't like it. He he would get upset, and you could see you had shaken him. And I don't think people give this enough credit. Dogs understand your body language. If you get mad and start throwing a tantrum, even if it ain't at them, they get nervous. And, you know, the way you talk to them and the way you treat them is how they respond to you. And it's like all my dogs is housebroke. Every one of my hounds was housebroke. And I heard I've I've been standing in conversations and uh, have people look at me and they said, yeah, you can't house train no hound. I don't say anything. They've already made mm -hmm. up their mind. Mm -hmm. What I said was gonna not, not going to affect them any. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good lesson right there. That most of the people, when they venture a strong opinion, their minds made up and they're not going to be dissuaded from that or, you know, from that opinion. But I agree with you. And another thing, it comes up when you're out with somebody else, you know, you may have the tendency to yell at your dog or whatever, but you got to think that other guy that's over there hunting, he may be hunting a young pup that's only the first time or two out to the woods. And when he hears this human being roaring out there, it, it, you know, it may affect him. Of course, the deep and lonely guys would tell you, well, that, that pup isn't supposed to be around there anywhere. He's supposed to be a mile through their treat. But uh, it, it's just, there's a lot of, you know, someday I ought to do a podcast on just uh, uh, coon hunter etiquette. Well, you know, I mean, just simple things like how many times have you gone coon hunting with someone that hasn't been very much before and you're going through a thick place and they just pull a limb back and let it go and it smacks you right up upside the head. You know, just the little things like that that can make the hunt so much better for everybody. Well, I have, I, you know, I have a, I have a, sometimes I do things and people just think I'm outlandish, right? But it's not for them. It's for the dog. The mm -hmm. dog is used to my style. Yeah. he. I own him and train him, and he is used to my style. So if I walked up and just talked to now like his, with uh, Junior and, and Rummy the Third were just 180 degrees opposite. You, you know, they're just different dogs. Rummy the Third opened good and trail good and treat good, 
Junior was quiet. And I didn't try to change either one of them. They both mm-hmm. were the way they were. Yeah. If you didn't like it, you couldn't you couldn't make th- you couldn't make Junior open any quicker than what it did. That was him. Yeah. And I, I what I did was that I hunted with him for about six months and uh after he won about uh well I hunted with him for a year and he won almost I think he won just a little under three or four thousand dollars and then a year later he won quite a bit of money so he, he was up around six or seven thousand and I just evaluated things and I decided that if he didn't want to open on track after six or seven thousand dollars being won I could live with it yeah that's right well let's talk about that a little bit you had some success in uh, not only the world hunt I think maybe in in super stakes and other uh, you know what's what have been some of the high points in your competition career that you you can recall well i think uh uh well i i I, they may not be high points to other people right but but i think the the first time i made a dog a grand night old rummy i remember the exact day and i mean the exact place i was standing when i when i finished him out to grand night and i was so tickled and then i took him uh you know i played second in the super stakes with mo and uh I've won the PKC state with uh, Junior, and uh, I won the AKC uh, state with Mo three times, and I won the AKC state with Rummy the third three times, and I won the world, and I won the I took second in the AKC uh, nationals, and uh, you know I've had a pretty good career, and I. I I've won. Uh, I I won a heat in. Uh, I mean, I won uh, one night at uh, PKC Walker Days, which to me is there was 163 dogs, and I was the second dog out of 163, and I consider that a good hunt. And I didn't want to go back out. I always wanted to split. I always thought I made more money if I split. Yeah. Well, we used to kind of laugh, uh, you know, being on staff at PKC and all. It's usually the guy that that stands up first and said, let's hunt. And you can almost, if you want to bet on it, he's going to come back fourth in that final cast, you know, more times than not, you know. And the guys used to razz each other about being uh, skeered, uh, you know, to get to hunt it off. But I think guys have learned that, you know, in most cases you're better off to take the split and, and go home, you know, especially that a lot of things change in a late round, you know, tracks are colder uh, it, and you might have to end up hunting woods that have been hunted earlier mm-hmm. and all, all those kind of things, you know. But that, that's quite a run. That's a good run, you know. Are you breeding any dogs now? Do you any? I'm between the rock and the hide place. I can't find what I want, and I don't like what I can get. So I got a little dog now named Jill, and I think I'm going to hunt her some and make sure she's what I want, and then I think I'm going to artificially bleed her to to the, uh, Rummy the the fourth, and uh-huh. I'm going to see how the pups turn out. Yeah. And uh, But, you know, w- when you think about it, I started out with Rummy, Junior, Mo, Jasper the third, and I call one dog other than those five. So you, you figure I've had five dogs that were world-caliber dogs out of six. Yeah, that's, yeah, pretty, that's good pretty, average. pretty good average, it's for sure. It really is. Um, I want you to tell me a little bit. Now, 
as far as uh, kind of get off on a rabbit path here just a little bit, uh, you have a business now, a tree cutting business, right? Yes, sir. How old are you, Keith? 66. I see. That's supposed to be retirement age, you know? I can't sit still. <laughs> well, so you you uh, uh, trim trees and do that sort of thing, right? I, I still climb. I don't, I don't climb much. I got a grandson that I'm teaching the business to, but I, I cut down a lot of dangerous trees that other people can't. Uh, the other day we were working and uh, we cut down a 71-inch uh, oak tree. Mm-hmm. It was 71 inches across that. I'm that's six foot basically. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I've got a big Husqvarna 3120 that I, that I use all the time. Not, not all the time. Not, my grandson uses it all the time. I just use it when I have to, because mm-hmm. it weighs about 40 pounds when you gas it up. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I've been teaching him. One of the things that I really enjoy doing is that, uh, you remember Mike Kelly? Oh yeah. Very well. Mike Kelly and I used to see, I, Mike Kelly and I used to go together and uh, about every PKC hunt that they had a youth event or anything like that, I would buy a light and give to a youth. And I always told him, I said, now, don't tell anybody this is coming from me. You just sell it under your brand. And uh, when I when I got ready to go to the world, he sent me a top-of-the-line light at the time. It's not top-of-the-line anymore, but it was at the time. And... Uh, <laughs> Him and I collaborated, uh, I think I, him and I collaborated on 12 coon lights over the years for youth hunters. And uh, Mike was one of the best men I, the, the, in the coonhound business as far as I'm concerned. Well, you, you certainly strike a nerve there with me because Mike was one of the nicest guys that uh, I ever met in the sport. I think back to the first time I really got acquainted with Mike. It was at the PKC World Hunt in Aurora, and I've talked about it in a previous podcast about how the tennis center was all laid out there and all. And Mike's booth was up toward the front over on the right uh, at that time. As you come in the back of the door, if you went along the vendor booths up along the right-hand wall, he was up toward the the front part there. And... Uh, Okay, and this one particular night, we had a strong entry. We had, uh, back in those days, believe it or not, we were right now PKC is starting to realize once again the numbers that we posted back in those days. You know, this was uh, in, like I said, 98, 99, uh, uh, 2000 through there until 2004. I know when Larry Meeks bought PKC, the very first year, we doubled the membership. We had a 50, uh, well, we had a 50% increase. We went from uh, 8,000 to 12,000. So that was a 50% increase. Anyway, so the hunt was big. That night, Roy missed Roy Tramble. We talked about him many times. Roy came over and as he would do, he'd take that hand and kind of massage his shoulder a little bit and said, you got your boots, Fielder? And I said, Roy, I've got a light, but I don't have any boots with me. And uh, and uh, I said, but wait, I, I'll get a pair of boots. I'll, I'll buy a pair of boots if you need to judge. 
And I was working for PKC at the time, but I enjoyed judging. I was young enough then, and all you know, I'd rather, much rather go out there and listen to a cast of hounds run in tree than I would sit in the tennis center waiting for the questions to come back in, you know. So anyway, I went over, and Mike was there in the booth, and and uh, Mrs. Kelly, and I told him, I said, I I need a pair of boots. I got a judge for Roy tonight. Uh, uh, what you got here, you know? And I. Gave him my size and all that. He went over there and he pulled out a pair of boots and I tried them on and they fit well, you know, and I checked the chap and all. And I, I so I started reaching for my back pocket. He said, no, no, no. I said, what do you mean? I said, he said, no, no, no charge. I said, man, I, you're in business here to sell boots. I'm not going to take your boots for free. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, you, you're going to judge a cast tonight? You take those boots and enjoy them. And I did for many, many, many nights. And I got a, a friendship. And then later on, Mike and I worked together because I did some consulting for him. I did photos of his lights and, and helped him work with uh, a program where people were really just pounding him for donations, you know. And so we kind of set up a program where if you're going to ask for a light or something for a donation, you know, you're going to have to make a commitment. You're going to have to sign off that this is going to go for the purpose that you say it is and for nothing more. And when it's, uh, you know, the light's given to a youth or to that uh, for a charity, what you take a picture of that guy with the light and all, and you have to send it back in and all. And it helped to regulate that because he told me one time, he said, a guy, you know, this guy's probably 60 years old, walked up to like, boy, I really enjoyed that light you gave to such and such a hunt. And Mike said, well, that was supposed to be for a youth hunter. <laughs> you know? But he was a great guy, a great guy. And I, you know, I got on the plane and flew to Houston when I heard that, you know, when his funeral was going to be and and was there with judy his wife and sandy his daughter and and the granddaughter scarlet and all and it's a great family yes sir. and uh, mike was just a i never heard anybody say anything bad about him if you tell me something bad about him today it'll be the first time i heard anybody say that because he was just a, a great and one of those people that you know you meet in life and you're just glad for the experience you know well, I'd bought a new light from him, and I, uh, I'd i had it, oh, I don't know, six months, and I saw him at another hunt, and I had been using it so much. You know, he used to put that K-Light sticker on his, uh, on his, on his lights, and the sticker was almost worn off. You couldn't, you couldn't even see the phone number anymore. It had worn off, and uh, I come in, and I said, I said, Mr. Kelly, this light just ain't working. He looked it all over right, and he said, Keith? Have you been hunting it any? I said, yeah, I've been hunting it now five or six nights a week since I bought it from you. He said, you know, these things are not designed to, <laughs> to never wear and to never get hurt. <laughs> and he yeah. just, he fixed it and uh, he didn't charge me nothing for fixing yeah. it. But uh, he was sitting at the table, had his glasses on and had that uh, soldering iron and he, he put something new onto it, right? And I, oh yeah, it's working now. That's yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just a great guy, and and you know I I uh, think about so many back over the years. The other day on a podcast, I was talking about the PKC World Hunt, and I couldn't remember um, the the band. It was Bandit Lights, I believe that Basil Kittrell had, mm -hmm. and Basil was always there 
and working on lights. And his table was like organized chaos. I was like, how in the world can you tell what you're doing, Basil? But guys would bring those lights in, and Basil would fix them right on the spot and send them back out with, with a smile. You know, that that's just uh, – and I'll put a little plug in for DU Supply, DU Hunting Supply, that makes this podcast possible by providing the platform for me to, to have these podcasts every week. And uh, and that's the kind of customer service that they uh, believe in and offer out there, you know. And to me, that says a lot about a company, how well, you you know, it's not just the sale, the sale, but it's it's what, you know, how you take care of your customer after the sale, and you know. Well, you know, you've been hunting long enough now, so you you know a guy that's hunting one to two nights a week might need a little bit of a different piece of equipment than a guy that hunts five or six nights a week. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, uh, I, I try to tell this to people, you know, just because you can start up a chainsaw does not mean you're a woodcutter. Right. And it's just because you can lead a dog into the woods does not mean you're a coon hunter. Right, for sure. And so... I, I, when now there's been other people right that I've had great service from you know uh, Reggie Ramsey used to run Valley Creek, I mean he he I used to call him up and he used to ship stuff out to me right when I lived in Washington and I used to see him at the hunts and everything and he was always good to me, and you know you always remember when that guy goes that extra mile for you and uh, ships you something sooner than what you, what what you expected and you know that that's what it's all about. And, you know, you brought up a, a good subject, you know, coon hunter etiquette. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, a lot of times I've act, I, I, you know, I've actually lost to a guy on a cast and I was sort of mad. But when his dog got somewhere that he wasn't able to go, I went and got his dog. Even though I was upset, I guess God sent me out there, right? So you take off a little steam, let off a little steam, right? <laughs> you know, uh, but people nowadays, it's all about winning. And winning is just a byproduct of good training to me. If you train hard, you're going to win your share. You don't have mm-hmm. to cheat nobody. Yeah, exactly. Well, I can vouch for that, that ethic that you have, Keith, because, <laughs> you know, at my age, and, and yeah, I get to the trees fine, especially here, because it's flat, you know, and all. But invariably, if I'm in at a tree, you know, my dog by myself, I see that blue light coming. I know my buddy Keith's coming. Is going to help me out. Going to help me lead the either lead the dog or in my case, it's not carry the coon, but it might carry the the rifle back to the truck. But I, you are a team team player, and there's no doubt about that. Well, you know, I I I try I try to explain this to people. Now, there's sometimes I go to a hunt, and I don't act like I want to. I act out. You know, sometimes I've lost my temper. You know, sometimes I've used some foul language with people. But on the average, you know, that's what I look at is I try to do the best I can. Now, now I, I, I'm just going to be honest with you. I went to a hunt somewhere. I can't remember where it was. And I don't know what was wrong with me. But from the minute I unstapped that dog, I acted like a butthead. And I, I kept it up for almost an hour. And finally, I thought to myself, what is wrong with you? And... I had to go aside, right, and think to myself, what is going on here? And so I figured out what it was. I got stopped from the, by the place, and they gave me a ticket, and I was taking that out on all them guys. Well, that's what happens, and you know very well. And uh, it, 
it's something that it's just like we say in ta- in a relationship. You know, you, you don't take your work home. You don't take all the problems you had the day uh, through the day home to your wife. You know, and she shouldn't be the waiting there at the door telling you all the things that the kids did that drove her crazy that day. You should have an opportunity, you know, to be together and to build each other up mm. instead of tear them down. And the same thing applies to this, I think, in all relationships it does. And that kind of opens a door for something that I want to talk to you a little bit about. I know that you're a Christian, and I am too. Uh, we don't preach on this podcast. It's not a religious podcast per se, but I'm certainly not ashamed of the fact that I have faith in God, and I know that you do too. But now you do some uh, some church work, and you do, and you've done some uh, ministry work outside the church. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, i I wasn't allowed to go to church when I was a kid. My father went to work on Sunday morning, and I had to go with him. Now, he let, the, he let my sisters go to church, but he didn't let me. I went with him. And so I, uh, I didn't have any Christian background. And I, was, I moved down here in two, I moved to Alabama in 2004. And I, I met my wife, Janice. And she started going, she started taking me to church. And I got saved in 2008. I hadn't been saved before. And so I got saved in 2008. And I started going to the First Baptist Church of Shelby, right there, just a little church in Shelby. And uh, I work. I stayed there for a while, and now I uh, I teach a Wednesday night Bible study, and I am the children's minister. I take care of the children. Well, that's awesome. That's great. Well, you're going to be able to. Get, you're going to be going with us as we travel back to Alabama Saturday. And we'll be stopping at the Mississippi Youth Championship. Uh, Ronnie Stark and all those uh, folks over there at, uh, as uh, Morris Hardy, our other buddy here, says, Coffeville. <laughs> I would say Coffeville. <laughs> but uh, he was schooling nubbing the, uh, yesterday, I think, on how to say that, you know. But, uh, but anyway, it's going to be fun to be around the kids. And it's great, you know. Uh, I enjoy always being around young people. Uh, and, of course, I enjoy my grandchildren. Uh, we all do. But, um, you know, there's that innocence. There's that, uh, uh, that uh, eagerness to learn. I, one of the most fun things I ever did was when my boy was growing up, it was in our church we had like it was a scouting program but it wasn't boy scouts it was called royal rangers and it was a a, a scouting program almost to duplicate boy scouts but it also had uh religious teach or you know scripture verses and and bible applications and all that stuff and we did camping and we did fishing and we did hunting and I, I enjoyed that so much it was incredible but my boy was in it you know so uh, you know as he grew through the program I uh, you know they called us commanders and we would go out for a 
uh, a jamboree they call, which would be a long weekend up in northern Michigan somewhere and all. We'd have so much fun. But one of the most fun <laughs> nights, was, what I would do is I'd tell these kids, okay, now you got to talk to your parents. It was on Wednesday night during the the church, you know, parents would come to church and the Royal Ranger meeting happened while parents were in church so they could bring the kids, you know. I said, now, now, like next Wednesday night, we're going on a coon hunt. Okay, so bring some, wear some boots, wear a warm jacket. You know, we'll provide, if you got a little flashlight or headlight, bring that along, whatever we'll take. And I had it set up there in Kalamazoo, just right on the outskirts of town was the state game area. And Michigan being the coon zoo that it is, you know, pretty sure we're going to tree a coon. So we go in there and take the kids, and I had it all set up. And, you know, we got to be out of here back within an hour or what. It was like maybe the original one-hour hunt and because we got to get the kids back to, to church so the parents can take them home. And we, <laughs> we skinned a coon, and all those kids thought that was great except one little boy. <laughs> and he he lost his supper. <laughs> he just, but you know, just the the idea of working with the kids, you know that that's a that's a great thing, and I'm really looking forward to. And, and you you want to challenge them, but you want to also try to 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 feed on that that uh, energy that they have and that eagerness to get involved in the sport and try to help them. Uh, pick a, a a right path, you know, when they approach it and all. But, uh, but uh, yeah, it's uh, that's great that you're doing that work, uh, Keith. And I, I'm I'm happy for you in that regard. Uh, we talked about um, your. Let's talk a little bit about you know what kind of competition hunter are you? What kind of dog do you like in a competition hunt? Uh, you just uh, have you had a favorite? type of dog that you like to go to the hunt with or do you just just enjoy handling what you got well i had brummy who was a fire ranging dog and i i i, I guess i'm not sh- i'm not quite sure why but he, i mean for him to go a mile and strike was not unusual but he had a good nose but you know up there in the west i weren't a whole bunch of coons so he got used to going a long ways and he was open, but he did something that not many people really enjoy. He was ball on ball. He balled on the ground and balled on the tree. Now, I could call him because I hunted him so much. But if you hunted him, you couldn't tell. Because, I mean, he there was, there was a very little changeover. He didn't have much. If you didn't know him, he couldn't change over much at all. And now I had another dog, Junior. He was almost dead silent on the track. He didn't open much at all. But when he located, you know, a deaf man could call him. But he was, I had a five-minute rule. If he didn't open within five minutes with your dogs, he wasn't going to be with them. He was going to be somewhere by himself. And I don't know how many casts he won. I I think it was over 150 casts he won. And uh, he, uh, he won 50 of them treating the only coon on the cast so he would he he wasn't you know but he may only make one tree mm-hmm. but when you went there there was a coon in it yeah so i went then i got mo and mo was just the opposite he opened a lot more 
treed good, but he wouldn't go quite as deep. He, I mean, and then I had three. He was sort of a combination between them. He would, he would go as deep, but he didn't open quite as much as Mo. Now, the kind of dog that I like, I like a dog that has the ability, if the dog's tree close, he can get a piece of your tree, and if nothing going on, he can get out there far enough so he can get his own coon. I don't want a dog come half a mile away to back yours. I don't want that. Right. But now at the same time, if he jumps the same coon that you do, I don't want him to be so scared uh, not that he won't stay with yours. I want him to be open. I want him to stay with yours. And then when everything calms down, he's a mile out there treat again. That's what I want. I don't want him to pass by that coon because I've shocked him so much and uh, that he won't treat with another dog. And I don't want nothing ill. I don't want an ill dog around me. Yeah, I figure I started competition hunting in 87 and I've had a dog scratched twice for fighting in that period of time. And I'm talking about some years I hunted 75 to 100 casts and I've been scratched twice. And I can honestly say this, both times it seemed like my dog instigated it. It wasn't somebody else. It was mine. I don't... I think they were having a bad hair day, and they just got mad. And they, the the one time Rummy Senior, he cut the whole, he he run the whole tree up, a male and two females. He was mad. I don't know <laughs> if someone bit him or something, but when I got in there, the, all the dogs, were, were, you know, was backed up pretty mm-hmm. good. Well, that brings up a good subject here, especially for our, again, our maybe novice listeners or whatever. We don't, there's so many, so many uh, negatives to hunting an ill, what we call an ill dog, which is basically a dog that wants to fight or bully the other dogs. It can be at the tree. Sometimes it can be what we call shouldering. He can just, when you turn the dog loose, he wants to get up there and bump shoulders with the other dogs and put his bristles up and growl around a little bit and say, I'm King Kong, you know, and and, uh, that sort of thing. I don't see that a lot in the hunts anymore or a lot of talk about that kind of dog that much anymore, and it could be. And one way they've greatly reduced that, I think, is because the dogs are pretty much loners nowadays. Most of the competition dogs are. You know, they want to get off to themselves, and so it reduces that. But back in the day when the dogs tended to pack up tight on a tree, you know, and they bump in the ground. But what I wanted to say was younger hunters, new hunters, if you get a dog or you try a dog or it's your own dog and you see that he doesn't play well with others, you need to deal with that. And if you can't correct that that fault, you need to get that dog into a an environment where he can be somebody's nice yard dog or whatever because you're going to cause more problems for yourself and especially relationally problems with your hunting buddies because nobody is going to want to hunt with somebody that's hunting a mean or a fighting dog not only can they injure another dog you know they can cause dogs to draw minus points in the hunt Uh, and we always said you know a lot of times you know it's the dog the innocent dog that gets scratched because you know somebody bit him and it made him mad and now 
he becomes the aggressor when the judge's light's in there, and guess what? You're gone. That's right. You know. So, any other thoughts on that? Well, I, I, I see a lot of people when I was competition hunting. I run into it not not a lot, but uh, one of the big issues is with a with a dog, me too, and you know coming in late. And when he shows up, he wants to come in there and fire up. And because the dog that's been there for an hour don't want to hear that stuff. He don't want to mm-hmm. be run off the tree he's been been sitting on. And, uh, uh, you know, me too in this part of the game. Now, I always used to say if a dog's me too and there's no way he can beat me. Because if if I'm yeah, there, you're but, ahead, he's coming behind what, whatever you're doing. But, yeah. you know, for the most part, a me too dog is more aggravation for the fact is, is that when he comes in, he, he may not even try to start anything, but when he comes in, he comes in there all, all full of it and everything, right? Cause he just showed mm-hmm. up and he's got the coon and, and this other dog's been there, especially in the summertime in the South, he comes in there and starts running around the tree and the other dog's fatigued, right? And he don't want no part of that. And mm-hmm. usually something happens. Yeah. Yeah. And so. But my thing is, is people think that, well, you know, if you got an ill dog, you got to shoot him, uh, you got to do this. And that's not true. You can just, you can find a home for him. Exactly. You can find, there's people out there that would love to take him. Yeah. And I've heard many times, you know, guys say that I had a dog and he was just, he, he didn't, again, to wear that old adage out, didn't play well. And so to find someone that hunts alone. Uh, you know that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe just a pleasure hunter. That, you know, don't you know with instructions. Don't put this dog in a night hunt because you're going to have a short night, and then everybody's going to be mad at you. And that's not the way to start. You know. Well, I I think a lot of times, most of the good hunters, you know, dogs change as they get older, and you know sometimes they get a little growly, and you know, I think most of the good hunters don't want to handle that kind of dog. Now, there's a difference between an ill dog and a dog that won't be run. There's a difference. I mean, when I say this right, if if your dog comes in and tries to run mine off the tree, he might not do so good. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean I'm toting an ill dog just because he won't be run. But now, usually what I've noticed with ill dogs is that they guide the tree pretty bad. You might have to interpret it for somebody because I said guide, right? And they might not understand me. <laughs> but usually if that butt to, if the head is out and that tail is towards the tree, and if he sees something else come too close to the tree, he may have been the last dog there. He don't care. He can't count. But he's usually got his butt to the tree watching to make sure nothing comes in. That's an indication that he right. doesn't play well with others. Well, the thing that I always used as a as a guideline in talking about this was this dog interfering with the other dog through aggressive behavior, yada, yada. I said the, the minute that that dog takes his mind, his focus, off of striking, running, trailing, treeing raccoons and directs it toward the other dogs in an aggressive manner. It could be growling. It could be, like you say, guarding the tree, it, you know, at face barking, whatever. Uh, you know, when he gets his, he changes his attitude from coon dog to UFC fighter, you know, then that's the guy that you've got to deal with. Okay, that's what the rules provide because that messes up the. Well, you know, 
we could we could beat that horse uh, a long time, and I don't want to end this podcast on a negative note, but have something else to add on that. Well, I was at a hunt one night, and there was a, a dog. Uh, Mo was treeing, and he was face-backing him. And Mo would just move away from him. And when we showed up, there was a guy that said, well, that dog's face-backing Mo. He, he, his dog wasn't even there. I don't know why he was concerned. Well, he wanted to get rid of the blue tick who was winning the cast. And so I, I said, well, yeah, he is face-backing him, but Mo's just moving around. He ain't leaving the tree. He's not showing – Mo's not being aggressive back or anything. And the, the only time – anything was said was that if Mo got too close or the other dog moved around and got too close, he'd face back him a little. Yeah. And I said, he was not interfering with Mo. That's the key. And right I, there. and this guy started to complain and I said, sir, what part of he's not interfering with my dog? Have you missed? Yeah. I am yeah. not scratching that dog just cause he's winning this cast. Yeah. I handled my dog. He uh-huh. handled the blue. The, uh, I don't even know what kind it was to be honest right. with you, but he handled his, and I told that guy, all right, now, I've heard all I wanted. We scored the tree. And then he didn't want to see the coon. Yeah. Well, we get those bad actors. You know, that's right. And it happens that way. And, you know, for some reason, you know, that's the game for some people. Uh-huh. But for the majority of us, it's getting out there with a new group of guys that maybe we haven't hunted with before, uh, three dogs that we've never been with before, Cut them into the dark and let's see what happens, you know. And it's exciting, it's fun, and uh, you know, and uh, it's just uh, it, it. There's too many good things I think to talk about about coon hunting, you know, to dwell too much on the negative. Well, let's let's say, let let's just sum it up like this. I don't know about you, but I would say ninety six to ninety seven percent of my hunts that I go on are nothing but good hunts. Right. So that that's less than three percent of the of of the hunts that I've been in, and you figure I've probably been in well over a thousand hunts. So you're not you're talking a very small percentage of the hunt. And you know, how many times have you ever been in a conflict in real life? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) you're gonna run into that. And and I just said here earlier, right? I was one of those guys that them guys are talking about. Boy, you should have seen him. What an idiot! Mm -hmm. And I consider myself a a pretty good hunter. Right. Well, we I guess we just got to give ourselves the old saying: a checkup from the neck up before we lay our entry fee down on the table and say, "I'm going to approach this from a good attitude," you know, and see if I can make a friend, shake a hand, make a friend. Keith, this has been fun. We've done an hour and about three minutes. Is there any in it? And before we got into the podcast, and I want you to, uh, I want to thank you for taking your nap time. I know I like a nap in the <laughs> afternoon when we're coon hunting. It makes those nights a little uh, more enjoyable. But is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we haven't talked about yet? Nope. Not really? Okay. Well, it's been a great visit, and we're going to do it again, I'm sure. In fact, we might do a wrap-up, you know, with all the guys before this week is over. But I want to thank you. And, you know, winning a world championship, that's a dream that most people uh, go through their entire coon hunting career, including me, that uh, I've never done. And so that that's uh, that in itself is an honor. And the fact that you've, you've bred your own line of dogs down through five generations now and, and your service to our country – and and all of that and uh, the sacrifices you've made i know are 
or just beyond belief. And uh, I thank you for that, and thank you for your time here. Let's go tree some coons. Amen. Sounds good. Okay, that is a wrap on this podcast coming to you, as I said before, from the White River uh, National Wildlife Refuge in Arkansas. And uh, it's almost dark 30. If somebody comes along and says, where's Fielder? You tell them, he's gone to the dogs.